Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Help us to fulfill all our longings by knowing him. Help us to understand more about your love for us and your plan for our lives as we read the Bible and hear it taught. Amen. If you bought a Bible or a Bible app, um, grab that out now. If not, um, the passage I'm about to read will be up on the screen as well. You can follow along with. Um, So the passage today comes from the um, the Gospel of Jesus according to Luke, um, from chapter 14, starting at verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. And another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I am on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servants, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, What you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in, so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. I'm going to invite Musa up now, who's going to speak to us. Hi everyone, you can hear me okay? My name's uh, Musa, my privilege uh, to speak to you uh, this week and next week on this uh, really important topic of uh, longings and desires. Uh, But let me begin by a story that was all too familiar to me uh, in the 80s. Uh, There was a certain man, this is the time, remember, when the Cold War and the threat of nuclear war was all too real for people. Uh, who researched where he thought uh, the safest place on earth might be to live. He wanted to escape the chaos, the conflict of the world, the craziness of this uh, threat of nuclear war. Um, And uh, he wanted to live in peace, in security and tranquility. And his research led him to a group of islands that were 500 kilometres from the nearest country. The islands didn't have many great resources uh, to them. Um, And uh, they also didn't have any fairly strategic value uh, for any particular country, uh, so no possible reason to go to war. So he sold up everything he had, moved there, only to wake up two weeks later to the Falkland Islands War breaking out in his backyard. A few years ago, I met a man who married the girl of his dreams. That's what he said to me. He found someone who he deeply, madly loved, and someone uh, who deeply, madly loved him. In fact, he described his life with her like living in a dream. For two years, he thought he couldn't be any happier, until one day he arrived home early from work to discover her in bed with his closest friend, his best friend. And he said his whole life unravelled at that moment, and he went into a dark, spiralling period, as he described a nightmare that he couldn't wake from for quite a while. 
Now, I don't think either of those two stories are hard for us to relate to because as human beings, um, we have desires and longings for peace and for love that cry out to us deep from within us, driving us, urging us to satisfy them. And even in the face of disappointment, they don't, uh, they don't die off. They continue to be there, driving us and continuing to cause us to uh, act on them, even, even for those of us who try hard to suppress them. I want to take the moment just uh, right now to extend that uh, welcome that Jack uh, um, gave to you earlier on, especially if you're here for the first time. I'm really hoping that you might consider what I'm, I'm about to say, uh, both this week and next week, on this uh, topic of longings and desires. I'm hoping that you'll engage with me, work out what you think is true, uh, disagree with me and, and um, on points that you uh, think are wrong, uh, and I'd love for you to give me the feedback uh, somehow, whether directly in person at uh, afternoon tea later on or in writing or even better, maybe your friend would love to engage with you on those things. I'd love for them to actually feedback what you think on these things. But please um, work with me, engage with me on the topic and keep an open mind as we explore this, uh, uh, this topic, both, like I said, this week and next week. The topic of longings and desires uh, is important because we find that they're really deeply rooted within us and they motivate us, they drive us to action um, and they demand to be satisfied. It's not like we can ignore them. We're at university, we're really intelligent people, or at least you guys are, you're the one studying, not me. Um, And even we know that when it comes to decision making, it's not just our mind that we engage we're not Vulcans, you know, like Dr. Spock for you Trekkie fans, in case you're, who, who, who just operate on pure rationalistic determinism. Um, no, we have feelings, we have emotions, we, we have longings and desires, we have a heart. And often it's both our hearts and our heads that we engage in decision making. And I want to say, especially when it comes to the major decisions of life, like uh, what job you take or who you marry, where you live, those kinds of decisions, it's not just our heads. In fact, I want to say sometimes it's our hearts that determine the outcome of those decisions. Even for the super intelligent among us, you want to say sometimes it's the heart that trumps the head in these kinds of matters. Uh, Woody Allen was once asked, to justify his relationship with his partner's daughter, who people called his stepdaughter, some 30 years his junior, he said this, the heart wants what the heart wants. There's no logic to these things. You meet someone, you fall in love, and that's that. I want us to explore today, in particular, our desire for peace, for tranquility, for satisfaction, for things to be better for all things to be right and perfect, where people all get along, where nothing bad happens. I'm just saying to you, I think we all have that desire deep within us. We have that desire for for intimacy, for love, uh, to to love and to to be loved, both. Um, And we don't want these things in small measure, you know, like just a taste. We're never satisfied with that. We want more and more. We want to mine the depths of them until we are uh, satisfied. And these things work strongly within us. 
And despite the harsh realities of life, particularly as you look at the TV or your experiences in life, where you see the injustice, the poverty, uh, the social unrest, the wars that are taking place in the world, the racism, the discrimination, the suffering, your personal disappointments, and even in the face of death, all of these things don't kill off our longings. Reality doesn't say to us, don't pursue them anymore. It doesn't. In fact, we're frustrated, but we're frustrated because those longings haven't been satisfied and they just well up within us even more. We long for a better world. There is something not right about merely accepting the way the world is. In fact, you would want to say that it's potentially evil to just simply accept that injustice and evil and suffering and all those kinds of things just simply take place and to be kind of callously indifferent about it. To not care is, is not right. It's not good. And so I want to suggest to you that this longing for peace, for things to be put right, is actually a good thing. And I think we know that it is a good thing because these are what cause us to cry. It causes us to act, to move for change. But I want to go a little a step further and suggest to you and ask you to consider that these longings and desires have actually been given to us by God. It's part of the way that God has made us. If we had time, I'd love to take you through the whole storyline of the Bible. We don't. Uh, you'll be glad to know I'm not going to do that today, maybe another time. Uh, but uh, if you go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, you'll discover there that God's intention for us from the very beginning was to place us in a paradise of his making. Not that we had to create it or do anything. He simply provided for us and it was a picture-perfect paradise in where we were in perfect harmony with our environment, in perfect harmony with one another and in perfect harmony with God. Uh, this is what we were made for. But the story doesn't move too far before we realise we were the ones who mucked it up. How did we muck it up? Well, by choosing to, let me put it this way, satisfy our desires our way rather than trusting God to satisfy them. We mucked up our environment and that's clearly the case that we see today as we look at the evidence around us and climate change and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the problems with the environment, to a large extent, are man-made problems. Uh, it's not the way the world ought to be, our environment ought to be. We mucked up our relationships with one another and we don't need to flick on the news to realise that things are not right between nations in the world, that things aren't right in our society. There is discrimination, there is social unrest. Even in Sydney, where we're relatively living in harmony, we know that these things exist even here. And even in tight-knit groups like families, we know that there is domestic violence. Things are not Right, and I want to say even the tightest relationship that you can think of, the best of relationships, if you dig deep enough, you'll find that there's pain, uh, striving with one another and conflict there. The Bible tells us that we are in a mess and that ultimately the reason why we're in a mess is because we've messed up our relationship with God. But we weren't made for mess. We were made for paradise, for perfect relationships with one another, with our environment and with God. And our longing for a perfect world, I think that's just part of the DNA that God has placed in us in the very first place. 
And they get stirred up all the more, especially when we feel the injustice, the not rightness, if I can put it that way, of this world. Even when it comes to death. I mean, doesn't everyone die? It seems to be the most natural thing that we all go through. You know, the cycle of life thing that came out in The Lion King. You know, you, you're born, you're, you, you um, at some point find someone, you reproduce, and then you die. It's a happy cycle of life, except it's, it's not happy. I mean, despite what the song may lead you to think, it, it, we're never comfortable with it. We, we, it doesn't sit right with us. Um, we know everyone it happens to everyone, but in the face of death, especially in the face of the death of someone that we love, it never sits well. Deep within our hearts, we get a sense that there ought to be more to life than this. That there ought to be some eternity out there and somehow of tapping into that eternity. The Bible tells us actually in Ecclesiastes 3.11, it is part of the way we made, God has also said eternity in the hearts of men. I had these uh, verses on slides, but I don't, I can't reach, so I'm not going to try. Um, uh, Ecclesiastes um, is actually a great book if you really want to explore the topic of desire and longing. I'm thinking I might touch on it next week a little bit as we explore it a little bit further. But for now, let me just quickly say that we weren't made to die. And somehow we know that deep within us, that we were meant to somehow live forever um, and uh, that there is more to life than this cycle of life that leads to death. The second thing I want to say is that we choose to satisfy our desires our way independently of God because deep down we think that God is a killjoy. Somehow we see God to be this giant buzzkill in the sky uh, and we think that God doesn't like us having fun, that he doesn't want us to have a good time, he doesn't want us to have any pleasure, that what he really wants to do is to deprive us of all the good things that we really want to enjoy deep down. And we have this really distorted picture of God in our hearts and even Christians are not immune from this. In fact, um, it was a major breakthrough in my own thinking on, on this topic, but deep down... It's hard to root this out of my heart. Uh, certainly the way that some Christian life only adds to that picture. They've deprived themselves of pleasure and joy and they think that holiness and, and uh, really righteous living, uh, the, the kind of life that God wants is to deprive themselves of pleasure altogether. But I think that's all it does is that serves to promote uh, this awful picture that we have of the God who is there. Because the God of the Bible is nothing like that. From the very start, when we see the Genesis account, we, we realise that God actually placed us in a paradise that he made for us. He didn't deprive us of, of good things. In fact, he gave them the, the very things that they needed. Everything they needed, he gave them. And when he saw that they needed something, he didn't wait for them to ask. In fact, he was the one who noticed that it wasn't good for man to be alone. So he created marriage. Um, he, he's not um, giving us only things when we ask and he's never begrudging in the way that he gives it. It's always generous and he's always good about it. The picture of God in the Bible is a picture of God supplying every good and perfect uh, gift to us from above. Psalm 16.11 says this, you, you make known to me the path of life you will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. 
That's what he's longing for. He knows that that's what God will do for him. The promise of Psalm 37 verse 4 is, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You see, it's the devil who from the very beginning tempted us to see God as this killjoy. God doesn't really want you to have that best thing. Why don't you take it for yourself? And they believed the devil rather than God and decided to take. It's no wonder if we do believe that lie that we will therefore choose to satisfy our desires our own way independently of him. I want to say the big problem with this is that it doesn't work. We're never satisfied. And I'm just appealing to your experience on this one. We chase, we strive after, we organise, we work hard for peace, for security, for good relationships, for happiness in our lives and whatever other desire that you may have because the list goes on and on sometimes. But despite all our efforts, we never seem to arrive at the destination. The best we get are those temporary highs that don't last. You know, like a drug addict who's momentarily on a high, but when the uh, reality hits, the low comes crashing in on him. Um, Drugs promise a good time, but they slowly kill the addict. And I think that's like that with our desires and the way that we chase after them. Um, People get greedy for money because they hope it will buy them happiness. I mean, we all know that it doesn't buy them happiness, but we don't really believe it because we have had moments of happiness when we bought things. And so we think that the answer is to go out and get more money so that we can buy more of those moments of happiness until eventually we're satisfied. But they're never satisfied. The more you have, the more you want, the more you feed greed, the more it grows. It just doesn't work. And it's likewise with people who are addicted to sex. Uh, They think that they can satisfy their desires for physical intimacy by having those more and more of those experiences, but it never works. It's never satisfying. It just doesn't work. And to put it crudely, and I am putting it crudely here, we chase after the golden eggs instead of chasing after the goose that laid the golden eggs. In fact, what we find ourselves doing is, like the tale goes, we end up trying to kill the golden egg in order to arrive at that treasure trove. Uh, sorry, the, the, the goose... Uh, in order to arrive at that treasure trove of uh, golden eggs. What we ought to be doing, if you haven't understood what I'm saying, is chasing after the God who knows how to, who has the means to, and who wants to fulfil all our desires and leave us satisfied. Which leads me to the third thing that I want to say, that what we chase after and strive after and work hard for but miserably fail to get we discover in the Bible that actually God wants to give us these things as a gift at his expense, not something that we have to work hard for or earn ourselves. It's the wonderful news of the Bible that we discover. God wants to satisfy the deepest desires of our hearts. God wants us to be happy. He he wants to maximise our joy, to give us full, meaningful, satisfying lives with real permanent joy. We don't have to make a heaven on earth. We don't have to earn our way into a heaven if it's there. God simply wants to give us heaven on a plate. He's made it for us. 
And in fact, what we discover in the Bible is that he will do whatever it takes in order for us to get it. He will do it all. We don't have to lift a finger. Why? Because that's the kind of God that he is. That's the story of the Bible. God is a good God who wants to give us good things. Now, I wish I could show you heaps of places in the Bible where we can see that, but we don't have the time to to go through a number of them. Hopefully, we'll look at some of them again next week. So, I just want to um, take you to the story that we um, had read out to us, um, uh, which Jesus told, which we can find in Luke 14, that I think illustrates this uh, uh, well. So, if you've got your Bibles open, if you can look up to the, the story in Luke 14... Um, and we're picking it up from verse 15. The context here is that Jesus is at a dinner party himself, feasting at uh, this religious man's house, and someone in verse 15 says to Jesus, it's a little bit out of the blue in the context, but he says to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat in the feast in the kingdom of God. You see, the, the Jews in Jesus' day were well aware of the fact that the Bible describes heaven like a massive party that you wouldn't want to miss out on. Blessed is the person who gets an invite and gets to actually be part of the party. How lucky could they be? That's the way they pictured heaven. I don't know how you picture heaven. Uh, when I was growing up, I tended to picture heaven, and maybe you can relate to this, like sitting around on clouds, playing harps in white robes. And I didn't think that was a particularly appealing picture of heaven. And I thought, why would I want to go to a place like that? Isn't that boring? And to do it forever and ever and ever and ever, I mean, how boring could you be? And I think that's because of the distorted picture that we have of God, you see. That's why it's such a common picture. But nothing could be further than the truth. Actually, I discovered that the most common picture in the Bible that gives us of heaven is like a big party, a massive feast, that God is actually going to lay out for us forever and ever and ever. You think of the best times that you've enjoyed in life and I guarantee that they're with friends and they always involve food. (laughs) Yeah? So let me give you this picture. Again, I would have had it on the screen for you. Isaiah 25, verse 6 to 8. This is um, actually Rowan who normally speaks here his favourite part of the Bible. It says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for, for peoples a, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. See the image that we've got here? Rich food. What do you think of when you think of rich? I mean, I think of lobster, fillet, steak, you know, the best of it. Uh, I'm sorry if you're a vegetarian, maybe tofu. Um, <laughs> if that's rich food, I don't know. I've never really... Uh, anyway. Um, uh, and on top of that, there's wine. You know, we're not just talking cheap wine, but the best of wines, the Penfold Grand Hermitage on tap, never to run out and we don't have to pay for it. You know, when I go to a restaurant, I'm always checking the price list of anything that I buy. But no, nothing like that. You don't have to worry about it. It's all at God's expense, whatever you want, forever and ever. It's full of food. It's full of fun, friendship, 
and we have uh, proper fellowship forever and ever with God and with one another. That's the picture that we have. All the evil taken away, death taken away, everything bad taken away and we get to enjoy the good moments for If you get in, how lucky will you be? How unfortunate it would be to miss out on. This guy knew that. That's why he says to Jesus, how blessed will be the one who eats in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus in reply tells him a parable about a man preparing a great banquet who's invited many guests. And you need to realise that in the Middle East uh, back then, um, it was different to our day where you've got strict times and places for invitations. You know, you say, I want you to show up at 7.30 Saturday at this particular place, which means for you 9.30. But, uh, you know, we've got that kind of... But in the Middle East you made general plans because it would take a while, particularly if it was a big banquet, it would take a while to get all the food. You couldn't just simply go down to the Woolies and pick up the leg of lamb and all those various things that you needed. You had to actually go out to the farms and work with them and negotiate with them about getting various produce ready. Um, take a while to prepare a lamb because you had to slaughter it and or do all those things and you had to get all the other things and bring them in and it would take a long time and usually what would happen is when it was ready, could have been within that sometime in that weekend, you would send out another invitation saying to the people, come, it, it's now ready. And this clearly is what's taking place here. Um, he sent out his servants telling them, it's ready, come. But what do we find out? One by one, they start making excuses. And you have to say lame excuses because have a look at verse 18. What's the first excuse that comes with? Uh, verse 18, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it, please excuse me. You know it's lame because who buys a field or property without having first seen it? Unless you're uber rich and stupid, you, you would never do that. And if you've bought it, you want to say, well, what's the harush in seeing it on that particular... It's not going away anywhere. You've got it, you can't send it back. you just got to put up with it. So there's no rush No reason to not go to the party. The second excuse is just the same. Verse 19, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. A yoke of oxen is probably the equivalent of buying a tractor today. What's a tractor worth? Maybe $250,000 or something like that for a farm. Uh, It's an expensive piece of equipment. But he's bought five of them. That's a lot of money. And he hasn't even tried them out. I mean, who buys a piece of equipment like that without trying it out first? Have you ever bought a car just off the internet? Maybe don't answer that. Because <laughs> I'm with it and you won't want to know. Uh, um, who buys it? I mean, you've got to be crazy, stupid to do something like that, don't you? And if you bought it, you can't send it back. You don't have to try it out then at that particular time. You've got all the time in the world to try it out. There's no excuse to not go to the party. The third excuse is a fairly short one in verse 20. Verse 20, I've just got married, so I can't come. <laughs> the, the first two excuses came with a polite refusal, at least please excuse me. Um, nothing like that here, he just says I can't come, end of. Um, and as if it should be obvious why you can't go to a party when you've just gotten married, as if marriage somehow cuts off all fun that you must have from now on. I know some people think that way, but that's not really the case. Trust me on that. Um, 
And just in case you're wondering, they didn't go on honeymoons back then. So there's no good excuse to not go to a party. Now, friends, the main point I hope you can see from this story is that really what Jesus is trying to say is that heaven is a party that God is throwing at his expense, that he's gone to great lengths to provide for us, great pains to organise it for us, and we've been invited to this eternal party. It's an invitation that's really too good to refuse, but the point is that many people still refuse it. And the excuses that they make to not attend are all pretty lame and all pretty much the same today. Uh, Buying property, delighting in possessions, even today is considered to be more important than God. We live in this materialistic, consumerist age today. We spend and we buy and we borrow if we have to in order to get it and to get gain for ourselves. And in particular, we want to hold on because that's what greed does to us. And we get so caught up in this, in this process that God's RSVP is just simply ignored. We don't even think about responding to God's invitation to us because we're too busy getting caught up in the excitement of this consumerism that we're in. Or we get caught up with business or work or study. That's a good excuse, isn't it? Too busy for God, too busy for church. Surely that is an excuse that God will buy and the answer is no, no he won't. He doesn't buy that excuse at all. And the last one really is getting caught up in our relationships. Not just marriage, I guess, here, but it's the pursuit uh, and enjoyment of relationships, uh, whether that's boyfriend, girlfriend, whether it's pursuing someone you're going to marry, or friends, maybe. All these things, good things, can often relegate God to second place. It, we ought not to forget it's actually God who tells us to make sure that we love others. And he really wants to, us to take those kinds of relationships seriously. But they must never relegate God to second place. God says that it's important to put him first. Relationship with him must come prior. I think these are the three main excuses that people give, but there's lots of other excuses that people uh, use to refuse God's invitation to them. But here is what I think the main point is and how I think it relates to what I was talking about earlier. And see if you can grasp this and, 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 uh, and engage with me on this point. That people are too busy caught up trying to throw their own parties for themselves because they think they can do it better than God. The party I'm organising and throwing for my friends, the life that I'm building for myself is better than anything that God has to offer me. Just quickly, I'm going to take through the rest of the story very quickly. Verse 21, the master gets angry but remains determined to party. So he sends out his servants to the streets and the alleys to bring the poor... Sorry? Um, Yeah. (laughs) Does that sound funny? It's not. Maybe because that's a distorted picture that we have of God. But anyway, um, uh, uh, he's going to bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Um, Anyone. Uh, not only that, verse 22, there's still room for more, so he sends out his servants to the roads and the country lanes, go further out, farther wide. And notice in verse 23 it says, 
make them come in. He's determined to have a full party. Anyone who wants to can come. Anybody, absolutely anybody can come. It's not just for good people or for religious people or for those who think they're close to God or anything like that. It's for anybody and everyone. No matter if you think you're unworthy, no matter the history that's behind you, the kinds of things that you've done, it's all irrelevant. The invitation is out there for you. If you want it, you can come. The people who miss out is obviously the ones who just simply don't want it enough. They refuse the invitation. And Jesus is helping us to see here that we have an incredibly generous God who is determined to throw his eternal party and nothing is going to spoil it. Nothing, absolutely uh, nothing. He wants us to have a full life and great fun and I hope you can see that the picture that God paints for us of heaven really resonates with our deepest longings for a paradise with perfect relationships. The heavenly party comes free to us, but it does come at great expense to God. Jesus is telling us this story as he's on the way to Jerusalem where he plainly tells people that I'm going there to die because that is what it takes to prepare this feast on offer for us forever. He goes there so that you can receive the invitation. The question is, do you trust that God's invitation is too good to refuse? Or do you think that the party you're organising and throwing for yourself is better? A friend of mine's into um, royal wedding fever at the moment um, and I couldn't help but think if you were invited to Harry and Meghan's uh, wedding. Imagine, you get to go out to the... Uh, your letterbox, remember those things, and you pull out and you see this invitation and it's an invitation to the wedding of Harry and Megan. And on top of that, it's not just an invitation to the wedding, but they're going to fly a private jet out to pick you up from Sydney Airport. They're going to send you a limo service all the way to your front door. They're going to provide you with the clothing and a stylist when you get to London. They will put you up in Buckingham Palace for the week's long festivities. All at the Crown's expense. You don't have to do anything. Now, if you got an invitation like that in the mail, I dare say that you would say, I'm coming. Without hesitation. You, you, you know. And they said, don't worry, the Crown, the Queen herself, will organise it with the university <laughs> to hold off anything that gets in the way <laughs> and they will plan things around you. Don't worry. Wouldn't you accept that invitation? Well, God has a far greater invitation for you than any royal can ever offer. An eternal celebration, totally at his expense. It's an invitation too good to refuse. We don't have to lift a finger for, we don't have to pay a cent for, all at the expense of God. But sadly, it is an invitation that many people still refuse. But it's an invitation that God is dying for you to accept. Will you accept that invitation? 
friends, I, I hope you at least consider the, the kinds of things that I've been talking to you about today and consider whether it's true or not. I'd love to talk to you about it after, at, morning, uh, at afternoon tea a bit later on. Um, I hope you can join us for that. I'd love to see you next week as we keep exploring this theme. I'm sure your friend would love to keep talking to you about these things and exploring with you through the Bible the things that we've been talking about today and I hope you take them up on that because we do believe that God speaks to us through the Bible. But let me finish with a word of prayer and then hopefully see you at afternoon tea. Please join me in prayer. Father, open our eyes to the truth of who you are and who we are. Help us to see that you are a good God who wants to satisfy us with good things. Thank you for demonstrating your goodness by sending your son to die for us. Father, I personally pray that you would please help all those who are here today to see how good your invitation to them really is and that they would trust you by accepting that invitation and seeking to live their lives for you who has given up everything for them. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.